Welcome to another one of these Morrison meanderings, these uh, reflections on Scripture and on the real life that we as Christians live. The goal in these uh, various videocasts, podcasts, is that we'd be able to look at some of the practical reality of the Christian life and understand how uh, God intends for us to be able to live a life that Jesus refers to as abundant. And there are a variety of topics. Today, what we'll be looking at is spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is a topic that in some churches and denominations gets a lot of attention. Some churches and denominations gets almost no attention. And I think it's fair to say that likewise within the church, sometimes people tend to um, overvalue this whole realm of Satan and his emissaries, all those who work with him, and others who might tend to undervalue the importance of understanding what the scriptures have to say to us about how we're to um, uh, participate in this Christian life that does include elements of spiritual warfare. We, in these two talks, in these two um, vlogs or, or podcasts, uh, we're not attempting to address everything the scripture has to say about spiritual warfare. That's obviously a huge topic. We'd like to look at a few of the topics that every Christian would do well to understand. And uh, to that end, we're going to begin in uh, Zechariah chapter 3. And in Zechariah chapter 3, we're going to understand why the name Satan is used to describe the devil. Uh, because uh, that name, Satan, means adversary or accuser. And we're going to see a reason in the Old Testament for why that's the case. Follow along if you have your Bible or just listen as I read from Zechariah chapter 3 in the New American Standard. I'll read uh, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken away your iniquity from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. This picture is a remarkable picture for so many reasons, and we need to drill down into it a little bit. First of all, it helps us to remember who the high priest is. Uh, now, this particular Joshua, who's mentioned as the high priest here, is not the Joshua we think of when we think of the Old Testament. That Joshua was from more than a thousand years before. Uh, he was the one who helped Israel be able to conquer the wilderness under God's mighty hand and make, make the land of Israel into the land for Israel. Uh, but this is a totally different Joshua because Joshua wasn't a priest, the other Joshua. This one is the high priest. And the high priest is one of the priests who's chosen every year. And he has one particular duty in addition to his normal priestly functions. And that one function is that once a year on the Day of the Atonement, the high priest is permitted to go into the Holy of Holies, uh, the most holy place. 
and he's to um, represent the people of Israel before God and to plead with God one more time, one more year for his forbearance of their sins, for his forgiveness of their sins. And it's said that the high priest had to not only make intercession for the people's sins, but for his own. Well, here we have exactly that going on. This is the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, by the way, when you see that phrase in the Old Testament, that's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. That's worth its own podcast, maybe, but the angel of the Lord is the, is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, meaning before Jesus is born, he is, uh, shows up a number of times in the Old Testament, and this is one of them. And so we can look at this as Joshua being before the very throne of God. He's in the Holy of Holies. Um, he is going to represent the people. And, and before he even represents the people, Satan is prepared to make accusation against him. Can you imagine that? You're, you're the high priest. You're going to make intercession for the people of Israel. But you know yourself. You know that you haven't matched up to God's holy standards. And in this case, that's exactly what we have. In fact, the, the scripture says in verse 3 that Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. In other words, these filthy garments are a picture of his unrighteousness. So when Joshua is standing before God, before, when he's standing before the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ here, he is available for everyone to see that he's not righteous in and of himself. And, and it's because of that that Satan's going to make an accusation. By the way, we won't look there, but if you looked at Romans chapter 8, right around verse 32 or 33, the question is asked by the Apostle Paul, who makes accusation against God's elect? He, he doesn't wait for an answer because what he does is he goes and immediately replies, just remember who it is who answers that, that accusation. It's Jesus Christ. He's the advocate. What he's alluding to is the fact that Satan makes accusation against God's people. That's exactly what he's doing here. But it's interesting, the Lord doesn't even allow Satan to speak. Satan is preparing to speak. He's preparing to speak to denounce Joshua as having any right to stand before the throne of God. But what I love, what I love is that before he can even speak, Jesus says of him, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, a brand in the fire means somebody who deserved judgment. He deserved to be in the fire. After all, his his garments are filthy, just like yours and mine. He deserves to be judged by fire. But Jesus is saying he's been plucked out of the fire. What does that mean? It means he's been rescued even though his sin prevents him from deserving that. And I love how the picture goes on. He speaks to those who are standing before him and says, remove the filthy garments from him. Notice the two things he does. First, he removes the filthy garments. That's a picture of wiping clean our sins. That's what that's a picture of. Removing the filthy garments is this angel of the Lord, this Jesus Christ pre-incarnate saying, take off all of his unrighteousness. Second thing he does is he says, I have taken away your iniquity. Now I'm going to clothe you with festal robes. And he tells them to put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. This is the picture of the righteousness of Christ being put on us who are believers. 
do we see that in this whole realm of spiritual warfare that involves the accusations of Satan, about which I'll speak some more in just a moment, we need to understand that the ultimate confidence a Christian has when she encounters the accusations of the enemy, when she feels oppressed by what she knows to be true about her, her only saving place is not to talk about herself. It's not to talk about what she'll try to do. It's to appeal to the, to the, to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, you have taken away my sin. That's my only confidence for standing before accusation. You see, that was true for Joshua, the high priest. I mean, if he's a high priest, he's a pretty holy guy. Uh, I, I'm assuming he's a whole lot holier than I am. And if that's the case, notice Joshua doesn't have a leg to stand on when it comes to his own righteousness. When it comes to righteousness, the only leg he has is that Jesus took away his unrighteousness, his iniquity, and clothed him with righteousness. That becomes the source of your response when you become more aware of the accusing nature of the enemy. Hold that whole thought in your mind, that whole picture of Zechariah chapter 3. And turn with me to one other place, or listen uh, with me to one other place, and that is the book of the Revelation. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. It says in verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven, saying, Now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. So first, this declaration of the power and the authority of Christ. That's the first thing that we hear. But notice the second part. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. Folks, this hasn't happened yet. This hasn't happened, but it's going to. But what does it tell you is going on right now with Satan with regard to you and me? He makes accusation about you day and night. That's one of his main ministries, if we can refer to it as a ministry, and you know what I mean. Obviously not a good ministry, but if you think of an evil diabolical ministry, the I think the more significant, perhaps the more significant ministry, even than temptation, we all think of Satan's temptations, but it's possible that his ministry, if you will, of accusation might even be more significant. And, and it tells us right here that believers, the brethren, are presently being accused day and night before the throne of God. Well, what are they accused for? You see, most of Satan's accusations don't need to be about things that aren't true. Now, some of them might be. But there's usually enough or enough hint of truth in his accusations that he could defeat us if we listened to those and didn't know how to respond. 
So when you think about spiritual warfare, I think it's helpful to think that one of the elements of it is the, is the sense of a person, a man or woman, young person who is a believer in Christ, but who experiences discouraging thoughts, experiences uh, attacks on them. I, I remember for me, I was nearly 40 years old before I ever recognized the attack of, of Satan. Uh, before I ever recognized one of his accusations, I had been a Christian over 20 years. I had already been in ministry for about 13, 14 years. And yet I had not ever recognized that uh, some of the negative kinds of thoughts, uh, in, in my particular case, for example, I remember, um, I, I, it doesn't matter the situation, but I'll use it as an illustration. I, I happened to be preparing a lesson to teach the next day. And I uh, finished the lesson at about midnight on Saturday night, turned off my computer, got ready to go brush my teeth and go to bed. But as I turned the computer off, this thought ran through my mind. And you call yourself a pastor. Here you are finishing a lesson at midnight on a Saturday night, and you're supposedly going to go try to help other people tomorrow. And my immediate thought was, yeah, that's really right. This is terrible. I mean, you know, a real, uh, a, a real leader would already have been finished days ago. And, and the thought kind of came behind it, you're just, you're just a poser. But notice, it's not even I, I'm not saying I'm a poser, it's you, you're a poser. Now, I'm, I'm not aware at the time that this is Satan, I'll tell you why I came to believe that it is, in addition to everything that we're sharing right here. I, as I went to brush my teeth, I thought, now wait a minute, that's strange. I now remember that I planned my week last Sunday. And I planned four hours Tuesday night after my kids had gone to bed and Saturday night after my kids had gone to bed so that I could work on my lesson with the minimal impact on my family or my daytime work. Uh, I wanted to be able to do it at a time where it wouldn't get in the way of these other commitments. And, and so I thought, you know, I followed exactly what my plan was. And then my thought was, well, do I think that God is opposed to a person finishing a lesson at midnight on Saturday? And I thought, there's nothing in the Bible that says that. Um, so if this was actually my intention, and I did it, and if there's nothing in the scripture that speaks against it, what is it that would make me think that I am somehow um, a bad example of a Christian because I finished a lesson at midnight? Well, here's the thing. I don't and neither does God. So is there anyone else left? Well, if it's fact that Satan makes accusation against the brethren day and night, and if it's fact in Romans chapter eight that Jesus has to make intercession because, because brethren are gonna be accused, if that's a fact, then is it possible that's what I was dealing with? And so as I lay in my bed, I said to the Lord, Lord, I've never caught this before. I've never noticed. I've had many negative thoughts, thousands of negative thoughts, thousands of self-deprecating thoughts uh, like this. But if this is not from you, and if this is not from me, and if that means it's from the enemy, I ask you to give me peace and give me rest. And do you know that the very next second my alarm went off and it was seven o'clock in the morning? Now to you, you may say, well, that's not significant. You were tired. Well, what you don't know is I, my normal getting to sleep is normally 30 to 45 minutes. And if I've been reading or writing, it's more like an hour because my brain is ginned. Um, I believe it was God's kind way of saying, John, you're picking up now 
on the fact that when you have these kinds of thoughts from the outside but that feel inside, that are attacking you, they're, they're, it's not from my spirit. Now, one other thing I'd say is that in my case, I don't know about yours, but in my case, many times when there were um, accusations about shortcoming in my life, they would come five or six or seven at a time, like you're this and you're not this and you should be this and you're almost like a cacophony of voices. Well, it, I, I, through the course of listening to some good biblical teaching in the area of the Holy Spirit, I came to realize that's not the method of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't slam us. He doesn't attack us. He, he doesn't give us more than what we can actually respond to. His is a, is a gentle, firm, quiet, steady voice that doesn't stutter. In other words, if there was something the Holy Spirit is typically trying to get a Christian to look at, uh, he can say it very incisively and simply, that is not the truth. You're deceiving. You're living for yourself. Whatever it is, it's an invitation to repentance. It's an invitation to remember that we've been paid for. Our sins have been paid for. But it's not that slamming attack that we get from this accuser of the brethren. And so that's the first thing I would like to say about spiritual warfare is if you happen to be a person who notices that you get assaulted with these thoughts on the inside that are self-deprecating and, and, uh, and, and putting you down, uh, there is a really good reason, um, a lot of good reasons actually, to believe that in all likelihood what's going on is you're, getting, you're being attacked by the enemy and by his emissaries. And for that reason, my encouragement to you is to do what happens to Joshua in Zechariah chapter three. Remember that if you're a Christian, your unrighteousness has been taken off and you've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. If you need to repent, repent. And then thank the Lord. Certainly confess your sin and thank the Lord and renew your intent to go on walking with him. That's the first thing that I would like us to think about with regard to spiritual warfare. The other thing I'd like us to look at with regard to spiritual warfare um, has to do more with, uh, I would say, the the purpose of the accusation. The purpose of the accusation. Um, in fact, I might go so far as to say it's the purpose of all spiritual warfare, talking about from Satan's vantage point. Turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you have a Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm sorry, chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10, and I'm going to read verses three through five. And that'll, after we get through that, that'll be all we'll cover today. Second Corinthians 10 verses three through five, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking thought, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Do you see this? Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Paul is speaking at this point in 2 Corinthians with the kind of assumption that, of course, you're in a spiritual warfare. 
I don't know about you, but a lot of times in my Christian life, if I'm just walking on a Thursday morning between my truck and the office or, or between a lunch appointment and uh, going to read or to work or to go into a meeting, I'm not thinking I'm in a spiritual warfare. But you see, what, what Paul says is when we are walking in this body, that is, though we walk in the flesh, he's referring to walking in this body of flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. He's not saying we're not in a war. He's just saying that when we bat battle that war, we better, not we better not use those things that come naturally to us. That's what he's referring to. That spiritual warfare doesn't respond to what just instinctively comes to you. For he tells us in verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. That is, the weapons that we use in spiritual warfare are not things that come naturally to you. Rather, the, the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful to destroy fortresses. What does that mean? I, I don't sit around thinking about fortresses, and certainly not in my own life, but go on reading. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. So, so let's pay attention here, because he says that when we engage in spiritual warfare, we actually destroy fortresses we destroy speculations. We destroy lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God. Maybe this will help you like it does me. I envision a, a fortress. And whenever you see a fortress, it's always lifted. It's always high. Forts aren't typically down in a valley where people can kind of shoot down on them. Uh, fortresses take advantage of the high ground so that they can assail their enemy as they approach the gates. So if you can imagine that whatever this spiritual battle is in your life or this spiritual battle is in mind, in Satan's view, he's looking for high ground. And when he's looking for high ground and he engages you in battle, your instinct is going to be to follow your own devices. That is what comes to you. I'm just going to try harder or I give up or let somebody else fix me or something that comes naturally to you. But what he's telling us is that that these fortresses that have been raised up, they've been raised up for a purpose. And this gives us a great hint on understanding spiritual warfare. In fact, for me, this is possibly the single most important thing I've learned in my whole life about spiritual warfare, because I never knew it. I didn't know this until I was in my mid to late 40s. It says that the speculations and lofty things that have been raised up, meaning the high ground that Satan has taken, is specifically against the knowledge of God. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that Satan is holding high ground in your life and my life to keep us from knowing God? Well, apparently what he's doing by his accusations and his temptations and all the other things that Satan likes to do, his deceptions, he, his main goal, if you're already a Christian, he can't keep you from being saved. He can't keep you from going to heaven. But he wants to do something that increases the likelihood that your Christian life will not bear fruit. He wants to do whatever he can so that your joy won't grow. He wants to do whatever you, he can to keep you from helping people who don't know Christ come to understand the gospel. If he can point out the shortcomings in your life so that you won't speak of Jesus, or if he can attack the things that you're still trying to figure out for yourself so that you give up on trying to serve or trying to uh, be part of a, of a kingdom of priests within the body of Christ, serving the body, serving the Lord, uh, ministering on the outside. 
If he can do that, if he can make you impotent, then he will reduce the power that the kingdom of God was meant to have, meaning the, the body of Christ and the way that it operates. I'm not talking about the full the full arrival of the kingdom of God. I'm talking about the measure of the kingdom of God that's present within us right now. That's a matter for another talk. But, but in, this, in this battle that's going on, Satan knows that his ultimate goal, his ultimate goal is not deception, although he uses deception. His ultimate goal is not accusation, though he uses accusation. His ultimate goal is not temptation, although he uses temptation. Here's his ultimate goal. You who are a Christian, he just doesn't want you to know God. He just doesn't want you to know God. Now, I think it's worth asking a simple question. Why is that such a big deal? Why? I'm already a Christian. I'm already going to heaven. What, what does it mean he wants me to keep me from knowing God? I met God um, 45 years ago in college. You know, I, I came to know Christ. I believe the gospel. I was born again. So if that's true, then... Satan's already lost the battle, hadn't he? Not actually. Again, turn to your Bibles if you have it. To 2 Peter chapter 1. And you can follow along if you don't have it. 2 Peter chapter 1. This is what we read in the first three verses. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, that's kind of a long sentence, but let's break it down. First of all, he's writing to Christians because he says you've received a faith of the same kind as ours, so you're already a Christian, right? And it's come about by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, meaning it wasn't your righteousness, it was given to us through faith. Second thing it says is grace and multi uh, peace, not grace and peace are given to you. We've already been given grace and peace as Christians. Not even grace and peace be added to you. He says grace and peace be multiplied to you. That means whatever grace you've already received, whatever peace you've already received, let it will be multiplied to you raised by a factor of, of, of multiplication. What is the, what comes if, 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 uh, if grace and peace were increased in your life, what would it do for you? Grace kind of means I get a chance to try again. Peace means even in the middle of conflict, I'm at rest in my soul. What happens if you are really at rest in your soul all the time? What happens if grace motivated you to keep trying? Would that affect your spiritual life? It would mine. You know, when grace is increased, we get so much hope. When peace is increased, we lose so much fear. And this passage tells me that will happen in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. He's not talking about being born again. He's talking about in the growing knowledge. In fact, he, he addresses it again in chapter 3. Uh, talking about growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is saying that the more you grow to know him as a Christian, the more you'll experience grace and the more you'll experience peace. Well, look at the next verse. 
Verse three, seeing that his divine power has granted us, not might grant to us, not could grant to us, not under the right circumstances uh, will make an effort to grant, but has already granted, meaning if you're a Christian, this has already happened. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Think about that for a moment. If, you're, if you were full of life, he's not talking about biological life and he's not talking about, talking about being born again. He's talking about abundant life. Everything necessary for abundant life and godliness, meaning living the way God actually wants you to. Living the way that you as a Christian actually want to live, to please him. It says here, that everything necessary for me to experience that vibrant life and that godliness comes through the true knowledge of him who called us. Well, that's interesting. That word true knowledge is a different word for knowledge than verse two. It specifically means the experience. It's the experiential knowledge of him. Folks, just stop for a moment, thinking back to what we just read in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Why does Satan want you to not know God. It's because the more you get to know him, you become dangerous, spiritually dangerous to him and his purposes. Because let me tell you, if you became a man or woman or young person full of grace, full of peace, and if you were experiencing life, real life, and if you were, your life was characterized by godliness, do you realize how much that empowers your witness? You realize how much that make, gives purpose to the work that you do? And Satan's goal is I can't keep him from heaven, but I just got to keep him from really knowing God. Because if on earth he comes to really know God, I'm up a creek without a paddle. Because the fortresses I've erected in his life are destroyed. The speculations I've, been, uh, I've erected have been destroyed. And we finish with this phrase from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Going back to that passage we were just looking at, you'll notice that I left one clause off. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we read verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That's the nature of the battle. But now notice this. It tells us how to do it. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The way that you and I can actually win that battle the way we can win the battle that Satan has pitched against you so that you won't know God is to learn to take captive every one of your thoughts to the obedience of Christ. Now that's worth many, 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 many podcasts, articles, books. What does it mean to take our thoughts captive? But for the just for right now, just while we're beginning to understand this idea of spiritual warfare and the way it operates in our lives, from the accuser of the brethren to the war that has been erected against us to keep us from knowing God. Let's just simplify it by saying this, that the more I learn to take everything I think captive to what God says in his word, the more I'll know God. And the more I'll know God, the more peace will grow. And the more I know Christ, the more um, 
grace will grow. And, and the more that I get to know Christ, the, the more I'll see godliness um, in my life. And, and the more I'll see me get to experience real life, vibrant life, abundant life. Spiritual warfare is a big deal. And it has a lot bigger impact on a lot of us than we many times think. So my hope is, is that as you reflect on these things, as you study them, as you pray about them, God will enlighten you. He'll open your heart. He'll open your eyes to see what he might want to do to teach you to develop a, a stronger walk with him for the future. Thanks for listening. 